there was a dinner for the 125th anniversary of Deacon Allen. And they made a video, so this big long video, and everybody they would ask about it, any of our employees would talk about the longevity of this business and how we've gone through multiple world wars. We've been through fever epidemics. So you kind of think like, well, this, this isn't exactly Deacon Alley's first rodeo through a hard time. Today's episode is brought to you by Matt Haga with State Farm Insurance. Matt is licensed in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi. We all know the things that you rely on most with your auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance is understanding exactly what you are getting for a competitive price. If you're looking for an agency that is prompt with their communication, committed to the success of the relationship, and that values what's in your best interest, then you need to call or email Matt Haga with State Farm here in Memphis. You can email Matt at Matt with two T's at Matt Haga, H-A-A-G-A dot com. Matt Haga State Farm is licensed to provide coverages for these services in Tennessee and Mississippi. We do have listeners all around the world and all around the United States. So please make note again that this is for the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Now we're going to get back to the show. My guest this week is Chris Canale. Four years ago, Chris founded Old Dominic Distillery, and Old Dominic produced its first batch of whiskey in 2016. This is a fun and straightforward conversation that goes into the history of 150 years of family business, what it's like running a startup company during COVID-19, unique and fun personal and family experiences during COVID-19, and what it's like going up against the big players in the spirits business and more. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review and share it with your friends. Chris, great to have you, man. Thank you for having me on. Yes, sir. From an ownership perspective, you know, you're three, four, five years in on really getting to market with old Dominic and y'all gone through an aging process with whiskey. So you're starting 2020 y'all have gained so much recognition and so much just appreciation from the Memphis community. And I'm sure y'all have plans. And then something like COVID happens where all the restaurants are pretty much shut down for a period of time. And y'all do do wholesale distribution and things like that. But from a personal standpoint, what's it like to deal with the things that you have to deal with and then also make changes and pivot and motivate your team just to keep pressing through something that none of us have really seen before. We got started, I guess, here. I think we started distilling in the in the spring of 2017. This project started back in 2015. With this crisis, I guess, just to put things into perspective, and I always try to keep them in perspective, this company, not the distillery itself, but Deacon Alley & Company, our family company, was started back in 1866. And I've got a copy of a 125th anniversary video from, I guess that would be, oh, geez, what would that be, 1981? 1991, I'm sorry. There was a dinner for the 125th anniversary of Deacon Alley. And they made a video, so this big, long video. And everybody they would ask about it, any of our employees would talk about longevity of this business and how we've gone through multiple world wars. We've been through fever epidemics. So you kind of think like, well, this, this isn't exactly Deacon Alley's first rodeo through a hard time. but it's definitely my first time. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But I do try to keep things into perspective. You know, you don't have to look very far back, just a generation or two. And these things happen a lot. These just enormous worldwide challenges, you know, that we go through. But honestly, from our perspective, COVID has actually enabled us to step back a little bit and think about things that we had rushed into before or things that we frankly hadn't thought through or, you know, lots of things like that. We're taking a totally fresh look at the marketplace. From a business standpoint, we're off, obviously. The Memphis market is doing well for us, but we're off in all the other markets that we're in. But the Memphis community has supported us, thank goodness. And we've been doing everything we can to support it. But putting on the COVID glasses definitely, that's a term, but it definitely changes your, your perspective, your point of view, and has allowed us to see things in a different light and a little more clearly. And so we've been able to pivot. We're changing the way we view the marketplace. We've changed the way our sales team structures change now. And we've been able to make some financial decisions that would have been hard in any other scenario. But with COVID, I think we're probably not the only business that has done this, but it allows you to step back and almost take a fresh start with everything you're doing. And for a startup business, that's really a huge opportunity because you put so much time and resources and passion into something so that when you're three years in, like we are, it almost seems like you're stuck with what you built. It's hard to take a step back or to make a cut over here or to make an investment in this line of business over here because you're kind of stuck on the path. You've invested in it. But with this three years into a startup business, we have an opportunity to point at this line of business over here and say, you know what? That's not working. It never was working. It's a sunk cost. Lots of sunk costs. We've been identifying those and cutting those. And in the meantime, we've been identifying in ways that the market has changed, has been changing, but now that COVID is here, it's changing so fast with online marketing and with curbside pickup and all these kind of things that we were behind on and we're not going to be behind on anymore because they, I think the situation is nothing else has accelerated the way business will be done in the future. So, yeah, that's rich from like your personal perspective and how you experience these things like emotionally or late at night or after work or during the day. And then how you have clarity with your thinking to how you kind of boots on the ground during the day. And I know you've got a great team, but what advice can you share or what does that look like to where you're kind of getting higher level thinking amidst a lot of short-term ambiguity, you know, operationally or from a strategic perspective, how can you get higher level thinking and then execute those pivots or changes while keeping your sanity, I guess? Well, I mean, I I can't say that I didn't go through a couple of weeks of playing a night going, oh God, what are we going to do? Because you don't even know what's going to happen the next day. You know, there was a period there where every day was the last. But I guess, I don't know if I had any advice or anything, if I were telling my kids that we're facing something like this, this too shall pass. And there comes a point where it keeps pushing you and you're able to sort of retrench a little bit and you start seeing the end of it. You start seeing the other side of it. And then you can start getting aggressive, kind of going back on the offense. But again, it's that opportunity that you have at that point to go forward in a smarter way. But yeah, I'm not going to sit here and I was not rosy definitely for the month of March. And even in the first part of April, I was just, I felt like we were just getting our butts kicked. Yeah. So we did a campaign called, it was hashtag race spirits. I don't know if you've seen that where we were giving ours a bottle to a fund that was being administered by the community foundation. And we did a 
a single barrel release. It was just two barrels, but I gave a bottle to each of our employees and wrote them a note with it that I hope they never open it. And I hope they put it on their shelf so that 30 years from now, or even a next generation on the shelf that they can look at that bottle and remember they've been through some hard times before. Right. Okay. So all these things pass and it's tough, but with all these things, I think there's lots of silver linings to look at too, both on a professional and a family level. So have you always been that way? Like, or do you feel like your experience or thinking has grown to where you kind of maintain more hope through things like this that are unexpected and then know that you're going to see several linings on that backside of it? Well, when you go through a few of these, whether it's a pandemic or some interesting jobs that you've had and, or bad bosses or whatever you've had in the past and just tough times, you always get through them, right? Yeah. One way out and it's through it. You always get through it. But I do think maybe I'm wired a little different. I know there's lots of people that are wired like me, but if you were, if you had people that are sort of resilient on one end of the spectrum and then people that play in their lives years out in advance and when things don't go their way, they just don't know what to do. I do think there's kind of two ends of the spectrum there. And I think it takes all kinds of people to make the world go around. If everybody was like me, we probably wouldn't get anywhere. But <laughs> like this, I think that being able to be really nimble and be able to turn on a dime and just leave everything else behind. I think that's a, a quality that I have, but again, I'm not saying I'm <laughs> better than anybody else by any means, but if you look at our head distiller, Alex Castle, she is my total opposite. And we would not have had the success that we have today without her. So I think in different situations, different character sets are more applicable. So how did you meet Alex? Can you talk a little bit about, it's hard to really get a ton of information because obviously you're privately held, but one thing that seems like a really clear thing that's just seen over and over is like, A, your respect for Alex, your appreciation for her, and almost like how she compliments you with where your strengths are and where you add value and then her ability that kind of, and how it all sets that. So how'd you meet her? How'd she come to Memphis? We've done a very long search for a head distiller. We've been at it for probably eight months or nine months. And <laughs> we entered lots of interesting people. At first of all, at the time, it was hard to get somebody that wanted to be in the, the spirits making business to want to live in Memphis. They wanted to live in Kentucky or New York or California. So we were not high on very many people's list. But the people that we did interview were very, I'm not judging anybody, but they're very hip, hipsters, you know? Yeah. They whiskey because they thought it was cool, right? And they all wore those, I don't even know what you call them, with the snap in the front, you know, and they all had creative facial hair. and these Rocky Balboa hats, what he wears, exactly. like those Kangol hats. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, just interesting folks and they, they wanted to be creative and they thought that's what being a distiller was all about is being creative and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, running a distillery is, it's very process driven take somebody like Alex Castle's run. Basically, a distillery, same thing happens every day. Once you dial in a formula, it is a science to make sure that absolutely nothing changes because part of quality control is consistency. So for somebody that wants to be creative, this, this is just not a place for them. So Alex is actually one of the only people we interviewed that was an engineer by background. And she's done this before. She came from Wild Turkey. She ran an entire shift there. At the time, she was 28 years old. I believe she has her master's in chemical engineering. She helped build a distillery in Lexington 
And then Wild Turkey picked her up. But at the age of 28, she was in charge of an entire production shift. Obviously, that says a lot. But, yeah, she impressed us from the get-go. But, again, very detail-oriented. And we knew right away that we could trust her to take care of this place and the equipment. And very clear that she would be a good ambassador for the brand. Very classy person. High integrity. She's wonderful. And so, yeah, we're lucky to have her. So you made, I guess, Deacon Alley sold to the Handy family in 2010. And then 2013, you decided that you wanted to start Old Dominic. And so that's when y'all started construction, right? And then it was finished in 2016. Isn't that correct? Yep. Okay. When you were interviewing Alex, what year was that? What year did she come on board? I want to say probably mid-2015. Okay. So it's about still a year before construction was finished and production was starting. Yeah. It may have even been early 2015. She was on board a good 18 months. So she was on board through the entire construction and had a big hand in the layout of the facility. You know, it was kind of her kitchen. She's going to be the cook. She needs to lay out her own kitchen. You sound like really good at letting your key people do what they need to do and then also be get the recognition that they need. I mean, did you learn that like those first years with Deacon Alley before it sold? Or, I mean, did somebody teach you that? Like, how do you know, you seem very hands-on, but then you also seem like, even with that, the way you described it with Alex, like where she's got skin in the game, she's got buy-in sounds impressive. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I think a lot of it's just knowing where your own weaknesses are, frankly, but no, we've always, our company, our family has always placed a lot of value on our employees, you know, we're basically one big family. And one thing is absolutely for sure is that it takes everybody, you know, my granddad had a plaque on his desk that said, no, one of us is as smart as all of us. And now it lives on my uncle's desk, which is now my cousin's desk who works here. But I think that if you don't have the self-awareness to know that you don't know everything and you absolutely never will, then you won't be able to, to hire really good people and give them the room that they need to grow and the opportunity to create their own place. It's not all about me for sure. And I want her to have all the recognition that she's been getting, which is wonderful. She's done a wonderful job. I don't see the way to do it, frankly, you know? Yeah. I was thinking last night just about your experience with the beverage company before and obviously just there being obviously a lot of distribution there and not being the same thing as old Dominic, but some similarities and that kind of infrastructure. Can you talk about any of the value, not from like making it any easier? I don't mean about that at all, but I just mean about at least having some sort of framework with going all in on another startup in whiskey when you had some sort of experience with the Canale before. Yeah. I started working at the Budweiser facility when I was 12 in the summertime, which yeah, I started working there with them when I was 12. And my first boss was a guy named Oscar Poplar. And a guy like Oscar Poplar, who'd been working at Deacon Alley, he was the, basically, he was the janitor. We had this ginormous ice machine. We bagged pallets and pallets of 50-pound bags of ice every day that we give to people when they buy a keg. So he bagged ice in the morning, and he would run the sweeper, which is mechanical. You ride on it, big warehouse, clean all the warehouse, dealt with the trash. But he was my first boss. But he'd been there forever, didn't talk very clearly, but he worked his tail off. And 
treated me like I was his own son. You would think like boss's son would come in, go to work for somebody like Oscar. And I think that if I were Oscar, I would have some preconceived notion about what the boss's son was going to act like or wouldn't be just right off the bat as accepting as he was of me. Anyway, he was my first boss. And like I said, I mean, he treated me like his dad. So I've worked in the warehouse for, geez, every summer up until college and then started going out on route trucks. So I got out in the marketplace and got to interact with customers. And so we had 200 employees. We called on 1,600 accounts and knew every one of them by name, not just the manager, but like the receiving clerk at Kroger. That's who makes the decisions in a Kroger store. (laughs) So relationship-driven business, you know, and that's what I grew up in. So when we came around to selling it, the decision was made to start talking about selling. It's probably about 2008. Sold it. I went to work in the financial services industry for a couple of years. I worked in the timber business for a couple of years. But we no longer had an operating business in the city of Memphis. And we're still here. The canalies are still here. But we had 12 employees instead of 200. And even more than that, when we had the food division, which got sold in 1999, we had 400 employees. Now, all of a sudden, we had 12 customers in the city, no personal relationships, no nothing, which to me was extremely valuable. You know, there's kind of an intangible value of being woven into the fabric of your community. And on top of that, I didn't really like the financial services business. (laughs) And I didn't really like the prospect of sitting around my entire life managing investments, especially dealing with people that are, again, mostly in New York and California that manage investments, you know, talk to them on the phone, get on a plane, go shake hands in New York once a month, just did not do it for me. So this business, Old Dominic, was kind of the first opportunity that came along for us to recreate, well, an opportunity to get back involved in the city. And it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot different, more different than I thought it would be than the beer business, for sure. But it's still a people business. And I guess maybe most businesses are people businesses, but you know, the liquor business is similar. Well, it's identical to the beer business in that respect. But that's it. (laughs) That's all. The way the business is done, the transactional nature of it is different. It's a little more sophisticated than the beer business was. Liquor guys are just like Clark. Your friend Clark works for us. A little more sophisticated than our beer guys were 20 years ago. So, yeah, a little more sophisticated. That's really saying something, too. You know? So, But we've had a lot of fun. We've learned a lot. And I think we're, we got a lot of good things to come. We've got a good product and a good team that's motivated. And we're in a good spot. Man, that's great. Like something I was talking about with Kathy Pope, who's with the Mid-South Food Bank, she was talking about how she was a teacher for several years, and then she went into nonprofit and went down to the Gulf Coast. But like your story about when y'all sold Deacon Alley, and then you worked for the timber business, and then you worked in investments, I think it's just very encouraging because everybody's at different phases of life. And everybody just, there's things where people really enjoy it and they feel fulfillment out of it. And then there's times where people are just really not wanting to do what they're doing and they just don't know what to do about it. And I just think it's cool how, I mean, you you sound so rooted in your family's history. You sound so rooted in customer service. You sound so rooted in surrounding yourself with a good team. And yeah, like times like right now are hard, but just kind of like digging in and then figuring out where do we need to move and zig and zag. And then let's just keep running with it. And there's a sense of just contentment kind of with the process and with how things are going. And I think it's just encouraging to hear you kind of talk through it. That's good. I'm I'm glad to hear it. 
that it sounds that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It doesn't always feel that way every day, but I stay up at night plenty. There's no doubt. And we've got all the pieces in place, at least all the important ones. So or we believe we do. So, but thank you for the kind words. That's very nice. What would you say, like from a production standpoint or kind of get to market standpoint, three, four years in, what are things that you could pass on that you've learned at this point, three, four years ago, that it would have been valuable to know then? Well, we've made plenty of mistakes. What would I tell myself five years ago? Honestly, not a whole lot different. I think I could definitely have saved myself a lot of money and some things that <laughs> were good ideas or felt like good ideas, but didn't work out, but they were well-founded ideas, but they just didn't work out. But I think we've kept the right attitude that when we when something hadn't gone right, we made sure we learned something from it. Frankly, I know we've made plenty of mistakes, but I, I don't know that I would say that we should have done anything different. Yeah, it sounds strange, but... No, but I mean, it's also like pretty fast. Like that's a pretty narrow period of time. And there's also been a ton of growth and just a ton of activity. So that might've been an unfair question to ask to a certain degree, but it's almost like if you, if there's too many mistakes, what it should have done differently within a period of three or four years, probably wouldn't be around. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if you don't make any mistakes, you don't have any opportunities to learn, right? Just don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. From kind of an ownership standpoint or leadership, like old Dominic has done an incredible job. Any entrepreneur or anybody that has any responsibility knows that there's stuff that they're having to like work through or navigate where it's just not perfect. It needs to be dealt with. There's issues, there's services that don't go out, et cetera. What advice can you give on just maintaining optimism, a confidence in the brand, confidence in the product, while also knowing the things that got to get fixed and just not letting those issues kind of deter momentum and energy in really getting the product to market and really growing it and having a really good positive effort behind the branding of it? Well, I would say you want to learn from your mistakes, but not dwell on them for very long at all. Take, you know, glean what you can learn and then come up with a new plan immediately and get everybody committed to it. You know, I'm big on collaboration. I think that sometimes a small price of collaboration is that sometimes everybody talks in circles and nobody really knows where they're going, but eventually you do find your way out. So that's just part of being nimble. Yeah, things go wrong. But you got to just not dwell on them. Learn your mistakes. Come up with a new plan. And for the golfers out there, once you decide what your shot's going to be, you got to be 100% committed to it or it's not going to go well. How do you kind of think about your key people or anybody that's with you that's under your responsibility for all of us acknowledging our humanity and that we're all going to make mistakes? What are the things that you kind of look through or think about to where if it's just not a good fit or if that person just can't produce versus not? dwelling on it, moving on, letting it go, learning from it, et cetera. But then also when it's just, when that individual, that pro, et cetera, is just not going to work. How's that kind of played out with your own leadership? We've only run into problems when there was a problem with humility. I get humbled every day, but I think that's the main thing I look for in retrospect. I've always looked for that. Somebody that's teachable and also <laughs> understands that they're going to make mistakes and somebody that's honest, somebody that's willing to work hard and is willing to make mistakes and willing to be responsible for them, but just has the mission first and foremost over themselves. But I think humility 
checks all those boxes. I think it is the one thing you can look for in a person that can kind of guarantee all those things are going to go well. And yeah, anytime we've had any problems in the past, which has been very few, has been when we've had somebody that they don't fit because they're not just a humble person and they can't work with the team. If we've ever had that, any problems, that's been it. Just doesn't have the ability to work with the team because they've got their own thoughts, which is great. Bring your own thoughts, but you better be ready to get them shot down. And you better be ready to just accept that you're wrong. And I do it. I try to do it all the time. And I try to keep myself accountable in that regard that I don't ever run away from being somebody that is very easy to recognize when I'm wrong. But I think when it comes to teams and teams being able to work well together, that's the one thing that's going to stand in the way. So y'all have got a restaurant or I'm not sure if they're doing takeout. I don't live downtown. So, but you've got a restaurant, you've got a wedding venue. I mean, you've got an incredible facility downtown. How much of that had you thought through on the front end strategically planning to kind of build that out over time? And how much of that has just kind of evolved over the last four years? So from the top, <laughs> yeah. So originally this whole concept came along because we had a bunch of old Dominic stuff in our conference room at our corporate office, which is above Huey's on second street down there. And our conference room has moved or our office has moved over the years. We moved from down on North front in the early 1900s. And then we moved downtown. I guess we've been in the NBC building, which became the SunTrust building on union. And then we moved across the street to where we are now, but we've had all this stuff accumulating in our conference room, the Deacon Alley conference room for over a century. And those things happen as we launch a new product at Anheuser-Busch. Like if we had some specialty Budweiser can that had pictures of Clydesdales on it or one that was gold instead of white, you know, we'd stick it on the shelf in the conference room. So we got lots of stuff like that. And we were in a meeting with a guy from New York, an investment banker on something completely unrelated. And he's the guy who saw that stuff on the shelf and said, what's that? And, you know, we used to be in the whiskey business before Prohibition. And he thought about it for a while and kind of was scratching his chin. And then, you know, a week later, he came back with an offer for the brand. And he had some friends at Fortune Brands, which is a big conglomerate, publicly traded company that owns lots of brands. And he wanted to sell our brand, just a story, the Fortune Brands. That was kind of where it started. And that's where the idea came from. And, you know, we kicked it around. What if we just did this ourselves? You know, we got century and a half of distribution experience. Maybe we should look at this. And we did. And our first thought, getting to your question, was we were just going to do a private label. So we were just going to go buy bulk whiskey from Kentucky and bottle it and put an old Dominic label on it. And that was that, you know. We could do something with that because that's exactly what Fortune Brands was going to do. They were just going to put somebody else's whiskey and put old Dominic on the, on the label. It would not have been authentic. It is for us. But that's how we were going to start. And then we started studying the market and getting into the details, doing some due diligence on whiskey trends and all that kind of stuff. And we started realizing that authenticity is actually exactly what people are looking for today. And so we realized if we're going to do this, we're going to have to have our own facility. So then we talked about what do we need? Well, 5,000 square feet to fit this equipment, 10,000 square feet to fit this equipment. We started shopping around for properties we found some warehouses way up north, Memphis. We found some empty land up on the Wolf River Harbor. We looked uh, on President's Island. We even talked about going out in the country, like in East Shelby County, and just building a, a facility out there, out of, out of the way of everything. And we'd driven by this building where we are today. Oh, gosh. I mean, dozens of, well, I mean, all my life been driving by here 
and it would look like kind of like a strip mall. You don't even realize how big this place is from the street. And so I've just had the for sale sign in the window and figure what the heck I go in there and we go in. And once you go in, as this building slopes toward the river, it's one story in the front, but as you slope toward the river, you get another floor in the back and you get the gravitational flow and you have this one room with a 30 foot ceiling where the stills would have fit. I was like, man, we, this actually lays out pretty well. But it was way too big for us. You know, we didn't need 55,000 square feet at the time was what we were thinking. And then we started laying out some initial floor plans of what we might put in here, you know. And as things go, the bigger your house is, the more stuff you end up getting, you know. So you never have a house so big that you have like three empty rooms, right? You just fill it up. So a year later, after going through plans, now we've got this huge tasting room and we've got a multi-purpose room. We've got this room that I'm in right now, which is the upstairs wedding venue room and room for a restaurant. And we just laid out these big plans and went from a concept of having like a $2 million facility to all of a sudden it was like a $15 million facility. <laughs> but damn, it sure seemed cool. You know? and I don't know. It just kind of kept evolving. But the scale that we, one thing about it though, is if you're going to be in this business, you can't go in it real small. I mean, the big guys will just eat you alive. There, I mean, there's some huge companies out there. And like to be a local brewer is possible. If and you can sell just your beer in your local community, if you want to be a small crap brewery and sell beer, sell beer in the city of Memphis, you can do that because people drink a lot of beer. I mean, you think about how long a six pack of beer lasts on the shelf of your refrigerator. Okay. Now, how long does it bottle? Depends, you know. Yeah, right. Well, it lasts in my house. It doesn't last long. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Day or two, I and mean, the weekend it lasts me from lunch until five o'clock. Different for a bottle of whiskey. So to be a craft distillery, a local craft distillery, really just catering to your community is that's not a feasible business model. It doesn't work. There's not enough volume there to justify your existence. So to do that, to really be, you know, to have a you know, like a feasible business plan, you kind of have to be at least sort of a regional player, and you have to start at a certain scale. It's kind of like go big or go home. From a production standpoint on like how many bottles you can produce or barrels you can produce, is that what you mean by that? Yes. Production and also marketing and visibility, a sales team. You got to have boot down in the markets that you're in. I can go sign a deal with a distributor in New York tomorrow and send a couple pallets of old Dominic up there. And most likely it's probably just going to sit on the shelf because I'm not promoting it. We're not up there building relationships that's the main thing you got to build relationships with your customers and it's one handshake at a time and building them on a literally account by account by account basis did you know this before like for example that what you just shared about new york and send them a couple barrels up there but it would sit on a shelf and the only way to really and i know you have salesmen in other markets but did you know that just because of your previous experience or have you learned that you know more clearly over the last few years well that's what we did with budweiser Granted, it was Budweiser. <laughs> yeah. It's a slightly more well-known brand than Old Dominic Kiss. But we we dominated every single account we were in. We had the best people and we had the most coverage. We were in every account at least once a day. And, of course, we were dropping 500 cases of Budweiser in every account we went in weekly. The personal relationships and making friends is our business is actually, I wish that was our saying. I thought it was because that was our kind of our slogan at Deacon Alley Beverages, which was our Anheuser-Busch distributor show. Making friends is our business. It's wonderful. It's exactly what we can tell our salesmen. I mean, that's their number one priority on a daily basis is to go make friends with every single customer you have. 
be their friend. Don't just walk in and try to sell them something. Go in there and try to build a genuine relationship. Learn about their family. Find out what they need. If there's opportunities to do things for them, you know, listen for things that you can do for them and act upon those. Really try to be a true friend to them. And that is what enabled that company to succeed because we absolutely dominated in that regard. And we, as a result, we kind of did what we wanted to do in all the accounts. Go in and uh, I need that tap. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah. I do 40 day Chris, you know? Right. That's very important. That's in our DNA. So, yeah, we understood it from that regard. It's different in this industry and in liquor industry because you just can't quite have that level of coverage. So, our friend Shifani, again, he definitely understands that. Always has. He calls me old because kind of old school. I like to go in and actually, I don't have a Facebook account. If I, I'm, I, I might actually, it's really old. Probably got a picture of my 12 year old when he was three. He says he can support his accounts through those kind of means. And I, I just like to see people face to face, but all that's very important. Would you maybe share anything, any specifics? You talked about the big guys can eat you alive if you don't go big or go home from the start. Can you talk about some ways that somebody like old Dominic come in here, just so much visibility. So there's an emotional appeal to it. And then obviously the product, there's a commitment to the quality of the product. And then y'all have got the capital to come in big. Can you talk about maybe some of the, the stuff that you kind of have to deal with from big boys trying to prevent you from getting a market and taking market share? Yeah. Well, their pricing power is the main thing. You know, every distributor, we deal with distributors. This Tennessee being a franchise state, I think, geez, I think 36 of the states are franchise states where a supplier like us has to sell to a distributor first. And then the distributor turns around and deals with the retailer. So every distributor has got several big brands. Like they'll have Jack Daniels or they've got Tito's or they've got Kettle One or you name it. And so when we come in and here, it's been much easier. We've got a great distributor here in Memphis and people kind of already knew us a little bit from the Budweiser days, you know? And so we had a little bit of an advantage here, but when we go to Atlanta, and you come in and you're like, hey, I'm old Dominic. And, you know, your distributor, especially today, there's so many new brands and this craft movement that's going on. I'll be curious to see what this that all looks like on the other side of COVID. But it's hard to get your distributor's attention. And they're really the ones with the key relationships. If they hold the power to make your brand succeed or not succeed, 100%. So once you have an agreement, which is almost Binding for life, it's like a marriage. You can't get out of an agreement with a distributor. Once you're in bed with them, you can't get out. And if they don't do their job, and we've learned how to help them do their job, you know, there's a trick to that too, but they can just kind of bury you. They just don't focus on you. And then it gets hard because, you know, if they've got Tito's, for example, and you can make all this progress, the distributor ups, and you say you're getting them restaurant groups and gotten picked up since some big retail chains and things are going really well. And then the end of the year comes around and the Tito's guy comes into town and Tito's says, all right, I need 50 case displays in this store, this store, this store. And they can just totally take all your momentum because they've got so much pricing power. And then on top of that, they can come in and they can do 50 case drops in every single liquor store and price it like $12.99 just to bear you. If you start making progress and you get on their radar and they try to do it here and they haven't had much success in Memphis, knock on wood, but they can put programs together and start throwing a lot more money around than you can. You get on the radar and they will bear you in a minute. So that's what the crap brands have. Man, 
I mean, there's so many lessons here about any industry, but just how things work and how people will just keep you out. But I guess one thing that I was thinking about, I mean, there's even like celebrities, obviously a lot of celebrities that make lots of different products, you know, they never take off. It sounds like just because if you're not the one, two or three, that's controlling a lot of the market share, it's just going to be hard to get in. And if you don't have that emotional appeal or those relationships to really kind of gain critical mass, then it just seems like that's just an absolute must to really start gaining traction and then to really prove the quality of the product and then to really take off from there. Yeah, for sure. And at the end of the day too, it kind of, well, not kind of, a lot of it comes down to money. And you you look at what the distributor is making off of their Jack Daniels relationship versus their old Dominic relationship. Who are they going to pay attention to when it comes down to the wire and they've got to focus on Jack Daniels says, don't help them. You need to help me. Okay. (laughs) Yes, sir, Jack, I'll do whatever you need me to do. But that's just a challenge that the craft guys are facing. But I did that. The craft segment continues to grow explosively. But yeah, they're pulling all kinds of tricks. And I guess if I were in their shoes and was answering to shareholders, I'd probably do the same thing. When there was a barrel shortage, oh, what was that, two, three years ago? There was a barrel shortage and the craft guys couldn't get barrels to age their whiskey in. And the big guys made it even worse. They call all the cooperages and they buy up like a three-year contract. They throw, yeah. give me 100,000 barrels a year and I'll pay you up front for the next five years. And they stroke a million dollar check. And then here comes old Dominic. I need 100 barrels a month. Can you help me out? I'm sorry, I'm tied up. <laughs> so those kind of games they play and that's business. So what's neat about a lot of what we've talked about is a lot of things have fallen, kind of come in line and there's just a lot of momentum, a lot of visibility, but just from the way that you've described yourself or the way this has started, a lot of it was just kind of doing the next thing. Yeah, I I wish I was more strategic in a long-term sense and we're getting better at that, but I've been fortunate enough to be involved in very well-run, well-organized, successful businesses that the CEO would tell you, nothing that I planned outside of 12 months is going to happen, like nothing. (laughs) It's just going to change that quickly. It's smart, of course. You want to lay out a plan for five years and think through all of that because it informs what you do today. But being nimble is, to me, one of the best things you can have as a business person. And I think situations like we're in right now, whether it's COVID or whether it's a housing crisis or credit crisis, whatever the situation is, and lots of different crises and different industries all every day. But those are when I almost like lick my chops, (laughs) you know, I don't know why I just do. There's just so much opportunity in times like this and yeah, they always hurt at first, but you start grinding through them and it's like, Oh my God, look what these horrible situations have created. Like look at all these opportunities that would never have been here if it wasn't for COVID or whatever. So yeah, I never wished for them, but we wouldn't be here without these hard times. Yeah. Well, and I think, we all have them in, in all of our lives. To, I mean, obviously, it looks differently with everybody, but we can't deny that they're going to happen. And so it's like, how can you be honest and accept things the way they are, or work through it and own it? But then how can you just, you got to move on and you, you can't live in the past like that. And I think there's just a resilience that you're talking about that others have talked about where I think it's just helpful even to assess your own life and say like, where am I too rigid or where am I too still wishing things were the way they were and you can't change it. So let's let's deal with it. And then we got to move on. There's just a lot of lessons, whether it's about the strategic side of the business or 
leadership, whatever, even just personally, there's a lot of value, I think, in what you shared and for people to learn and hear firsthand. I think sometimes you see brands, you see companies, you see individuals, and a lot of times it's just always the mountaintops kind of talked about or interviews, et cetera. But once you kind of know the ups and the downs, but you also kind of hear the perspective and the mindsets too, it's just helpful to think through it and how to connect it and apply it to your own life. Yep, for sure. And I I think everybody's probably learning a little bit of that right now with their families as well, like you mentioned. (laughs) Some days I'm not such a good father. The longer this quarantine goes on, I feel like I'm becoming a worse father, but I know that I'm feeling the same way a lot of families are feeling right now and that this has provided an opportunity, just like I'm talking about in business, to step back. You had to step back. It's not like you had the choice. You have to stop, 100% full stop. And you're forced to sit there and it forces you to assess everything you've been doing. And there's a tremendous amount of value and opportunity in that. And it's made my family stronger, even though we've had to spend every waking moment together. And (laughs) I've got four kids and I'm a lot of days I I can't tell you, like I wake up and I'm like, I don't really want to see my kids today. (laughs) But it's made us closer. We've done things together that we never would have done pre-COVID. We got things on the books to do that we never would have done pre-COVID. What do y'all have on the books to do? We got RV rented. Oh, nice. RVshare.com. We're going to do a backpacking trip. I bought a something that I hadn't made time for before. Teach my kids how to fish. Just never made time for it. I said I was going to do it for like the last five years. And my oldest is going to be 13. And I mean, he can push the button and throw it, you know, but... That's about it. So we've been fishing a couple weekends now, and I've got every weekend, of course, I want to get out of the house, too, teaching my kids how to fish. I'm like, hey, I can kill two birds with one stone here, you know? We bought a giant boat, and we're going to take it all over and Airbnb it and on the Tennessee River in Alabama, and we're going to go up to Kentucky Lake and try that and just for the heck of it. So with the John boat and the RV, that's all the same? Now the uh, RV trip... Is going to be, you know, weekends when we can get away. This is a the RV thing is a summer vacation. We're going to take it and do a backpacking trip out west one week. So That's great. That's so much fun. None of that would have happened, you know. Right. Talked about it, and none of that would have happened. So Depending on the either the male or the female airlines and how things have affected flying, that's the only way that a, in an argument that an RV can win with some people because otherwise they wouldn't want to do an RV. But I think because of just how the airline industry has been so affected, maybe a lot more people are going to be using RVs. Yep, for sure. Man, the last question I got, unless anything you want to share, but I don't mean like a revenue standpoint, but I just mean like a coverage. Where would you love old Dominic to be in 15 years with where it's at now? Oh, geez. I want us to be in a very stable and sustainable place. Not, I mean, I don't mean from an energy perspective. That would be nice too, but sustainable in that we're to a point that our business has been around long enough and we've got a scale to where there's processes in place where people can come to work and know what they're supposed to do every single day. <laughs> Starting up a new business, everybody has to wear a different hat like on a daily basis. And that's fine. But as far as scale, I think I would like to see us as a strong regional brand, but strong regionally, but on the cusp of being nationally recognized so that if somebody found a bottle of Old Dominic in Colorado or some state that we don't have plans to be in in 15 years, they would recognize it. They might not know much about it, but they would recognize it. But 
if we're at that scale and we have the pool and the markets that we're in, then we should have the infrastructure at that point as well to where there's just business as usual on a daily basis here. And that's not something we've really known, (laughs) (laughs) not just because of things like COVID, but because we're, we're new and we're having to pivot every day anyway. So COVID is just sort of another turn in the road at this point, but that's where I'd like us to be a strong, reasonable brand with solid infrastructure. Of course, I want to be making money and I hope everybody that we have on board today is still with us. I think they will be. I hope they will be. I might try to run Clark off. But that's the dream. Man, that, this has been great. Just some last thoughts that I have. I guess it was 1859. It was Dominic, right? Dominico? That's that right. Pronouncing it right? Just close to, I mean, approaching 200 years. But A, the pride that your family has for businesses and its family of companies. B, the pride that you have as a result from being in that family. Third, just wanting to plant the flag in Memphis be as much of the community as you can possibly be. And then fourth, just the way you talk about your people and just the people that y'all have now and y'all's commitment to your culture. So, man, this has been a great interview. I think it's just been a great story about how to to just be very honest and candid about what it's like to own and, and invest and, and run a startup right now that's much bigger than a normal startup and still how to kind of just deal with that for as it is, but then also kind of keep things in perspective and keep charging forward. It's a really great story. Thanks. We're just lucky. I tell people that all the time. We're just blessed to have the people we have and to be here, to be in Memphis. We love Memphis. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned at least one thing today that you can apply to your own life. If you like the show, please make sure and leave a review and be sure to tune in each week as I'll be releasing a new episode. Hope you have a great day.